The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hello and welcome to the Big Technology Podcast, a show for cool-headed, nuanced conversation of the tech world and beyond. The Facebook whistleblower has been making a lot of news. You might have heard of her, Frances Haugen. She is the source of an avalanche of news that we're seeing come across our feeds uh, about Facebook based off of a cache of internal documents that she's released to a handful of news organizations. So, what does this all mean? What's going on with the release strategy? Who is Francis? Who's backing her? Lots of questions around it. You're probably wondering a lot about what is the true nature of the source behind these leaks. Well, to discuss it, we have a great guest. His name is Lawrence Lessig. We're going to call him Larry in the interview. Um, he is a professor of law at Harvard Law School. Um, also former candidate for president. Um, remember your campaign very well. And, uh, and, and he's acting as a lawyer for Francis Haugen. So he has great insight into uh, what she's up to and what she's aiming for. Lots of questions that have been percolating and I am super thrilled to get into them. And I'm very appreciative that he's decided to come on. Larry, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Well, I was going to start with, thanks for being here. Well, I was going to start with, um, your relationship with Francis, but I want to leave that for the second part of this conversation, because I think the most pressing issue that a lot of people are wondering about right now is what's going on with this document release strategy. So just to catch people up, Francis brought, you know, essentially a laptop of information to the Wall Street Journal, if I'm right about that. They wrote a handful of stories that they labeled the Facebook files based off of the documents. They were able to redact a handful of them. Um, now they're in the possession of a consortium, small group of publications. I'm pretty sure they're entirely from North America and Europe. Thankfully, big technology is part of them, is part of this consortium, uh, which I'm thrilled about, uh, but also raises some like serious questions about what's going on with the document rollout and why these documents aren't widely available to everyone. So, you know, uh, Professor Larry, you've been deeply involved in this strategy. Uh, what just... Um, give our listeners an idea of, of, you know, why Francis is taking this route and um, and when the public can expect to see these documents in full, if ever. Yeah, so um, I think it's really important you're being careful about how we understand what happened. Um, and I, I apologize, I'm going to be a little bit of a legal nerd and, and restate what you said to make it precise and accurate. Um, <clears throat> Francis obviously had a bunch of Facebook, um, well, um, documents, uh, materials, which she turned over to the SEC and um, has uh, released um, to Congress in a redacted form. And these are the documents that the Wall Street Journal has used um, to write their pieces. And then it is Congress, it was a congressional staffer in Congress who um, determined that they would be willing to make the documents that were turned over to Congress available to journalists. And that's ah. when um, Francis's communication team, a uh, firm of Bryce and Gillette, uh, reached out to a couple of journalists to say that this was um, 
what the Congress was willing to do, and they then formed this consortium. So it's it's important legally to recognize Francis has not handed the documents to the consortium. Um, Francis handed the documents redacted to preserve the um, the privacy of members in the Facebook community um, who are who are named in the documents to the to Congress, and it's Congress that's now making them available public to uh, to the consortium. How does Congress get in touch with Bryson Gillette, which is run, I'm pretty sure, by a former Obama staffer? Uh, yeah. So how does how does Congress settle on that firm, or did Francis have a hand in that? And then as a follow up to that, how were the publications that were selected? Um, how did that process go? Was that Congress's decision, or was that Bryson Gillette's decision? So I don't think it was either decision. I, I, what I know, and you know, I retained um, Bryson uh, to Bryson Gillette. Um, mm-hmm as an attorney um, in my role representing uh, strategy and communications with Francis. Um, and they took the first steps and, you know, I didn't, it's w- above my pay grade to be monitoring every step they took. Yeah. But um, Congress at that point was eager to get the documents because they were going to be um, hearing her testimony. And in the context of he- getting the documents and uh, discussing the testimony, the Suggestion was raised, and I frankly don't know who raised it. Um, that that it should be more broadly available, and I think all of us. I mean, your piece about um, how it should be available to everybody. I think all of us have a desire that this information be as broadly um, decim- disseminated as possible. Um, uh, I, I think that intuition is what led um, people on Capitol Hill to think, well, how could we do it in an effective way? What I think is useful about this is to compare it to you know, other whistleblower-like events. I mean, you know, you can think about the simplest way to be a whistleblower, which would be to dump everything into WikiLeaks. Um, yeah, not which would make every- Yeah. Sorry? Not in favor of that. Yeah, because so. it's hard to interpret a lot of these documents. It's hard to make sense of them and, and put them in context and know what they mean. Um, and obviously, that's what Edward Snowden recognized when Edward Snowden did his um, release, and he picked a relatively small number of journalists to take the documents and to digest them and make them available in that form. And he was very careful to make sure he protected the innocent in that sense, so that you know people who might have been outed were not. Um, uh, and I think that was a very important strategy. This feels to me like the next step in the evolution of figuring out how best to do this. Because I think with these documents too, at least in the initial round, there needs to be a filter of careful journalists, people who are looking at them and studying them and comparing them and, and figuring out exactly what is, is meant. And, you know, they're not all self-interpreting. Some of them are hard to understand. When was this and what does this exactly say? And I think the, um, the idea of developing the consortium and making it available um, uh, it wasn't my idea, but I think it's a great idea, and I think, uh, and and I think it's on the way to to achieving what all of us want, which is full public transparency about what in fact is going on in this extremely important company. Yeah. So let's just pause on the consortium for a minute. Um, can you shed any light into how it was developed and who's making decisions of who to let in? Because I'll just give you a, a sense. I mean, I have obviously have advocated for these documents to be made publicly available to everyone, and. Um, you know, of course, after careful redaction to make sure that privacy is, uh, you know, people's privacy is retained. But um, the the reason why I'm asking about the makeup here is because a lot of these documents apply to countries, populations outside of the U.S., outside of Europe, 
there was an Atlantic story that talked about how like 90% of this stuff is about people outside the United States. Yet this consortium is consisting entirely of publications in the U.S. and Europe. Apparently there's no Spanish speaking publications out there. So, you know, I'd be, I guess I'd be more um, in favor of the idea of this, or I'd be more open to your argument that this is the exact right way to go about things, you know, if we had more global representation. So, um, yeah, so maybe you can shed light on that. Who's making the decisions about who to let in and, and you know, why not, no, no one outside of North America and Europe? Because I'll tell you what my inbox looks like today. It's, you know, editors in chief from publications everywhere from Italy to Russia. I just got another one from from another country, uh, you know, of, of, you know, lots of publications that are, are interested in reviewing these documents and interpreting what they mean for their populations. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I don't think there's any disagreement that it needs to be made available in consortia around the world. And, mm. um, you know, part of what happened in this rollout was the product of, you know, having to make decisions fast and moving as quickly as you could yeah. in the context of, you know, an exploding story. The initial consortium that was put together was actually a European consortium because there was some tension. You know, the Wall Street Journal had an exclusive on a bunch of these mm -hmm. documents that they were rolling out slowly. Um, um, after an initial, you know, dump of five or six articles. And the concern was, um, to be fair to the Wall Street Journal, since they had done the heavy lifting of putting this together initially and, and, and making it available. And then, you know, there's a certain point I know when the, when people on the, um, uh, in the, in the team said, you know, we can't preserve the Wall Street Journal forever in this exclusive English language space. So that, so that's what, uh, opened up the, American consortium. And I know that there's conversations about how to uh, expand it even further. So there's never been a moment where the decision was made to restrict. Yes. It's only been a difficult process to figure out how best to deploy as broadly, uh, you know, step uh, forward as we can. And, you know, you know, you're a journalist, you know, that there's a complexity with even something like a consortium because, you know, journalists are spending a lot of time to understand this. And I think they feel, and I think right, rightfully so, they need some opportunity to recoup that investment, not through money, but at least for the chance to say something intelligent. You know, if they, if they only had 30 seconds, what they would say wouldn't be useful. What they need is time to think and reflect and write things that are valuable and, and, and publish them and have a sense that they're not going to be scooped, uh, you know, from half the uh, story being rele re released too early. So it's yeah. a complicated process. And I think we're all committed to exactly what you identified as, um, well, you, your article is about making it available to the public. I agree with that too. But what yeah. you've just identified right now is let's expand this as broadly as we can around the world, because the critical fact is the number you said. 90% of Facebook's audience is not from the United States. Yeah. And the terrifying reality for the rest of the world is 90% of Facebook's safety budget is in the United States. So Facebook is, uh, Facebook is making Facebook as safe as it can for the United States, and it's still not very good. But for the rest of the world, it's, it can be literally a disaster. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And in fact, the, the other country, I, I feel like a fool for forgetting it. It was India. I got a message yes. right before I mentioned on Twitter that we were going to talk and someone, one, a friend in India said, please ask him about Facebook's largest user base market, aka India. Uh, I'd like to know more about what all these disclosures mean for the global South, quote unquote, given that they aren't aimed at us. My guess is they're aimed at U.S. lawmakers. It hasn't even sparked a conversation here. Well, I, I, you know, 
this is part of the problem of like interpreting what's happening as if it's mm-hmm. a plan driven, written, you know, 15 years ago. <laughs> we were thinking right. through every step. This is, you're exactly, yeah. you're exactly right. We've got to get, and mm-hmm. I think the plan is to get these documents in every place around the world where Facebook is affecting them so that those governments can make the same judgments that EU is making, that Britain, when they had Francis uh, yesterday testifying, uh, will be making. And the United States, for all of our pathology in Congress, is at least in this respect focused in a common way, both left and right, on the problems that this uh, platform is creating for democracy and for our society and trying to think about whether they can do something about it. So we're not disagreeing at all about the objective. It's just a hard thing to execute given the complexity of the egos involved in, you know, the the world of um, uh, great journalists. Oh, yeah. There, there are plenty of those. Um, yeah. and, and I'll just like state for the record, my perspective in, in having these in the importance of having these documents made widely, widely available to the public. I definitely see your point. Like there is a concern, um, you know, in terms of interpretation. But I do think we sort of get into trouble um, when we have like a class of gatekeepers and elite that sort of say only we can, you know, view these and interpret them. Uh, yeah, Alex, and- let's be clear. I, I completely agree with that. I don't think there are gatekeepers. There's just yeah. release that gives people a chance to digest. Yes. And my objective, my personal objective, I'm not speaking for Francis or for the consortium or anything, but right, my right. personal objective is that everybody be able to read them. And the reason I think everybody should read them, it's, it's kind of bizarre, but I think <laughs> if you read them, you actually see how great a company Facebook is. I mean, what's striking about this is to see the integrity and the good faith of the engineers inside that company trying to work out what makes sense, like what works, and the frustration they feel as they complain about the fact that their systems are being interfered with by the Politico types who reach down and overrule their decisions for political reasons. Um, and, and they're like, look, we just let us apply our rules. Let us do our job. Um, and I think when you see that, you know, it makes it easier to understand the complexity of a complaint like that. It's not filled with evil people. It's not filled with people trying to destroy American democracy. Putin doesn't control that company. But it's a company that's a mix between people doing as much as they can to make the platform safe and leadership who's focused on primarily how do we increase the, uh, the, the, commit, the commitment that the audience gives to that so that they can make more money. Yeah. And look, I've been um, covering Facebook for the better part of a decade. I've been into the offices in Menlo Park, you know, countless times, sat with Zuckerberg. I haven't understood the company. uh, And, you know, I, I, well, let me just put it this way. My understanding of the company is far deeper now after reading these documents. And I had heard the conversations, uh, but I do think that you're right. When you see the um, the amount of research this company does into each and every little decision that we sit and pontificate about, but there's right. data behind it. It's totally astonishing. And, you know, we'll get to um, what Francis is trying to accomplish here in, in a minute, but I think purely the, for the public's uh, sake to have access to these documents and be able to see this, you know, I'm already on, on team Francis, you know, being, being able to, to read through these, because I know, I know my journalism is going to improve and my understanding of the company is going to be able to, you know, be more, more complete. And, uh, you know, I hope people who get a chance to view these things and I hope everyone gets a chance to view them, but are able to like, look at them with, you know, with an open mind and, yes. like, and be able to take a look at the machinations of the company and learn from that. Yes. I, we're, we're in agreement. 
So I, now let's talk a little bit. You know, people, there there have been articles. We need to understand Frances and her political motivations and who's backing her. It makes it sound a little bit more nefarious uh, than I think uh, what's actually going on. Uh, but it's good to address. And you're the perfect person to, to be here to talk about it. So let's start with your relationship with her. You are a, um, yeah, I mean, you're, you ran for president as a Democrat. Uh, how how do how do you you know a former presidential candidate you know obviously someone you know aligned with the party uh, you know come into contact with Francis did you like reach out when you saw the journal story did she reach out to you I'm going to say that the concern that people have and I, I don't you know believe this but I feel like it's important to bring up is that people are saying she's an instrument of the Democratic Party and the association is something people question my job is to put the question to you well. Of all the things I've done, I think the least significant is uh, trying to become a candidate for um, president. I knew you would say that. I liked your video. It was fun. I I believe in the cause and I would do it again just to make that issue central to the Democratic Party. But the other part of that is the Democratic Party doesn't like me. They they kind of hate me for what I did. Yeah. You ran on like campaign finance reform. I can't ran on an anti-corruption platform. Like we got to fix the democracy. Fix democracy first was my slogan. And no wonder they they didn't like you. Yeah. (laughs) So so I'm no tool of the Democratic Party. But I think that, you know, I came to know Francis um, because of the work that I've been doing about, you know, technology policy since the 1990s. I mean, you know, I've been writing and and thinking about this forever. And one of her close friends um, who knew my work, um, uh, asked if I would talk to her at a at a point sometime in in August when you know she was this was all going to happen and I of course at that point knew nothing about what was happening but she at that point had been working um, for with uh, whistleblowers aid which is uh, um, you know public in, uh, is a charity a nonprofit um, which helps whistleblowers so uh, pro bono they've been giving her legal advice about the strategy to protect herself given what she was doing, both um, releasing documents and also going up against one of the most powerful companies in the history of humanity. So they had been advising on that strategy. Um, and she was asking me about the bigger questions of, stra- you know, the legal strategy, what other issues she was going to face, what possible steps she could take. Um, and that's that's the scope of what I was originally talking to her about. And it was, uh, it was also part of what I would do to think about um, – what um, uh, support she would need. And so uh, I was in the position of just deciding like what kind of firm would make sense here. Um, and I'd known Bill Burden forever. Um, and I knew him, you know, I, the thing that stands out for me was um, not that he worked for Obama, but that he had been in a wide range of uh, political contexts. seemed to me he was the perfect person to make calls here. And I reached out to him. Um, so at this stage, there's no Democratic Party <laughs> that has anything to do with this. Except when I reach out to Bill and I say, would you be willing to step in? And I hired uh, Bill, f- my firm, hi- I mean, I, my sole practitioner, I'm doing my work for Francis Pro Bono, but I hired Bill's firm. And that's when um, Bill became involved and his colleague, uh, Emily Schwartz, became involved to um, begin to give her advice about the strategy. Um, because, you know, obviously on the other side was a trillion dollar company that was going to be spending endless amounts of money yep. uh, trying to develop the other side of the argument. So we were trying to do as much as we can, we could. And up to the moment that she announced came out public, she had no support from any 
everybody except the pro bono support she was getting from me and uh, from whistleblower aid. After she came out and testified um, after 60 minutes and then uh, her decision to testify, then other people decided that they were going to step up and try to help her to make sure that she could tell her story and that this information could be spread broadly without the fear of um, you know, criminal penalties or whatever else might be on the table. Um, and that's when uh, Pierre Midiar's um, right. foundation stepped in. And I hope others do too. I mean, because you know, for the same reason you said these documents should be out there and re- read by everybody, I think many people, even people inside Silicon Valley who support Facebook, ought to be keen that this event helps us reflect in an informed way about technology and helps us, uh, you know, helped guide us about what kind of policy changes we should make. Um, so that that's the story of how I was involved and, and what yeah. I've been doing. And it's funny to watch, to read all these conspiracy theory things. Oh, that's because, why we're, know, we're here to talk about them. Yeah. Right. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> right. Because, yeah. you know, uh, you know, maybe I don't even know about the conspiracy. Maybe the conspiracy is so deep that it's controlling me without me even being aware of it, but I don't feel like that's likely. Yeah. So I guess, uh, do you, just from an optic standpoint, um, do you worry that, you know, uh, yes, I know Bill isn't, Bill Burton isn't involved with the Obama administration now. And, you know, you're uh, apparently on the outs with the Democratic Party. Uh, but do you worry that people will look at this and and say that this is, uh, not, you know, we, we addressed that it's, you know, your perspective that it's not. But do you worry about the, the this potentially the Obama Association um, potentially, and yeah, and the fact that Richard Blumenthal set up a hearing right away, right after the 60 Minutes interview. Um, do, do you worry this could potentially take away from what Francis is trying to do by, you know, we live in a pretty polarized time, you would you yeah. agree. So by taking this and turning it polarized, because what I'm seeing from, you know, one segment of the people that are viewing this is that they say that it is a operation to censor more on social media. I don't believe that what it, that's what it is. Um, but I'm curious if you think that it does, you know, potentially open it up to that criticism. Well, I completely agree with you that we're in a moment where it's hard to see anything without <laughs> seeing it in left and right terms. Um, yeah. um, and, you know, I think one striking thing about the hearings is that both uh, majority and minority leaders, Marsha Blackburn, too, was like keen to have her on as quickly as possible. So there, at least, we started in a nonpartisan way around these issues. Um, but, you know, the striking thing that Frances taught me from the very beginning of her uh, my uh, relationship in this uh, with her in this in this matter is that what's important to her is not her. She's not running for president. She's not running to be senator. She's not running to be czar of technology. She's trying to make the documents understandable to the world. And what she wants is the documents to speak for themselves. And I think part of I know part of our thinking and like getting the consortium going and getting hundreds of journalists to be writing about this was to shift the attention beyond her to the substance and let the documents speak for themselves and let the substance be the debate rather than imagining that we're trying to choreograph, you know, this really phenom. She's a phenom, right? It's astonishing how good she is at what she does. Um, but, uh, but, you know, the objective here is not to turn her into a figure, a media figure, um, or like a, uh, somebody who's supposed to be the um, oracle of all wisdom about everything to do with the internet. The, the, the objective here is to enable the information to be out there in a way that helps the public and governments on the left and the right and uh, north and the south think about what the right policy response to this problem should be. 
Yeah, and, and that's why I you know started that question with with the assertion that I don't agree that, agree that's what this is because you know I even found in the document stuff that doesn't really go along with what Francis believes, but it was there. Yeah. So uh, so yeah. that was interesting. The other thing that people say, and and you know well, I guess let's end this segment on this uh, is that she's I mean it's kind of wild, but people have said she's like a tool of the company. Like, I mean, we're going through the conspiracy theories. So let's just, you know, touch them all because you're the person to ask about them. Right. And that, you know, a lot of, she believes Facebook is good. And a lot of the policies that she wants to see are the policies the company wants to see, including the agency, an agency to overlook social media staffed by former social media folks, um, which people say would just empower Facebook to be even stronger. Uh, so, so what's your response to that? I can't believe it. Um, you know, I, I get, <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I get why people think this way. I mean, I thought the most inf- hilarious conspiracy was that she was, you know, from intelligence, you know, she was CIA because she was so good. You know, and I agree. She is so good at what she's doing. Um, looks like she'd been training for this for the last 20 years. Um, but, but, you know, what I know is that when this was unravel, uh, uh, un, you know, un, unra- unraveling, like in the sense of like the story, was opening up and we were, uh, it was going to come out. This was not somebody who um, was confident and none of us are confident that the company is happy and going to go along and pat her on the back for this to the contrary. Like um, the company has been pretty clear about, um, you know, if there's criminal uh, actions to be pursued, they should be pursued. Um, um, it's pretty clear that the data that's coming out, they don't agree, uh, is a fair representation of of the facts. So, so I think those conspiracies was conspiracies would be more plausible um, if uh, if the company were responding differently. But I, I just, you know, having been up close and watching yep. the sausage being made, I just can't believe it's anything like that. Except, you know, a woman who decided she had to do something to help us understand what we didn't understand. I mean, many people have been predicting what her documents demonstrated. Renee DiResta at Stanford had been talking about the rabbit hole effects, you know, for five years. Um, but now we have the data. And, uh, and uh, you know, I think what we had in Francis was somebody whose moral uh, compass was clear enough that she realized she had to sacrifice whatever career she might have in Silicon Valley, which, of course, is a very attractive career to many tech wizards, um, in order to help us understand yeah. The political threat that we faced uh, better. And one, uh, one, yeah, one follow up on that. Don't you think that she's going to be in a better place now than she was, you know, working as an integrity staffer? I mean, she's like you mentioned, she's a phenom now, um, and she'll probably have like a very successful career writing books and giving speeches. Don't you think? If you add up all the whistleblowers and you do the average of like mm-hmm. what the net effect of whistleblowing is for them, it is wildly bad. It is terrible. So, you know, I, I agree she's in a very good position because she's done her job so effectively. And I think people are persuaded by her integrity and by her good faith. But, you know, before any of this happened, if you had been, I had, I wasn't advising her at that point, but if some, if she had said to me, so what, what do you think my chances are? I'd say, look at every other whistleblower. Where's Edward Snowden right now? Um, what happened to Chelsea Manning? Um, you know, uh, and any number of these whistleblowers whose careers are destroyed and they basically fall into oblivion. And, you know, what are, what are they going to do? They don't do what they're doing because they're trying to get a book contract. <laughs> they do what they're doing yeah. because they think what they're doing is right. And that's what motivated her. Uh, and um, I think she's right about that. And I think, um, fortunately for her, 
her message is resonating around the world in a way that um, I think will have some good effect. Larry Lessig is here with us on the Big Technology Podcast. We are going to take a quick break and come back and talk a little bit about uh, Francis's funding. You mentioned that in the first part and then her political goals. So uh, we will be back right after this here on the Big Technology Podcast. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. And we're back on the Big Technology Podcast with Larry Lessig. He is a professor at Harvard Law School, also the lawyer for Frances Haugen, advising her on her whistleblowing activities uh, after she's leaked a ton of documents from Facebook. We talked in the first half about funding. Uh, Larry, you mentioned that you encourage uh, other people to come and help fund this Um the concerns that have been brought up in, in some places, and by the way, I, first of all, I appreciate you rolling with all this stuff. I think it's important to ask these questions uh, because we want to really attack uh, all the concerns that folks have had, and it's, I appreciate you responding to them, um, help us get a better picture of, of what's going on here. Um, so, so, you know, speaking of those concerns, you know, people talked about the Pierre Omidyar funding. Um, you mentioned you want to see other funders come on board. Is there a concern that that people uh, with uh, people will try to push a political agenda by by funding this, uh, in, you know, in one way or the other? Like, I don't know if the Chinese government came, uh, <laughs> you know, with a truck of money. You know, do you think that's a good thing to take? Well, you know, it's let's be clear. Nobody's running a GoFundMe campaign. Um, yes, they are. Whistleblower no, no, aid I mean, is. <laughs> I mean, whistleblower aid is to fund whistleblower aid. But okay. I mean, what I'm saying is for Francis Haugen. Francis, I'm not talking okay. about paying Francis Haugen. <laughs> Um, yeah, you know, r- money is being raised for the purpose of, for example, buying plane tickets and hotels as she's traveling to, you know, Europe to speak to uh, the EU Commission and um, into Britain to speak to the Parliament. Um, so, you know, that's the, you know, again to emphasize the point we talked about before the break. Nobody's into this to make money from it, um, and certainly the funding that I'm talking about is not the funding to pay her off. It's just to make it possible to tell. To, to protect the story enough so that it gets out there broadly yeah. enough so journalists have access to it. Um, I agree with you that understanding funding is a critical part of understanding the integrity of the message you're hearing. I mean, I spent six years running a ethics center at Harvard, the Safra Center for Ethics, focused on what we called institutional corruption, which is not legal, illegal corruption, but legal corruption, the way in which, you know, academics doctors, politicians, everybody gets inside of relationships that are dependent on corrupting influences, primarily influences of money. Um, And so one of the striking things, for example, about academics is if you go around to academics who are studying the internet and you ask, so where have you gotten your money? An extraordinary number have gotten their money from the very people they're supposed to be writing about, right? Mm -hmm. Facebook or Google. um, and and I think that's a deeply uh, troubling reality of modern life. And so I completely support your questions, Alex, about you know what exactly is behind this. What I've seen 
is that there's not been a lot of money. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Whistleblower Aid is uh, is an incredible shop. I mean, they're the lawyers in there are working twenty four seven. Um, but they're not big and they're not wealthy and they, you know, it's hard to keep the lights on, um, especially, you know, the numbers, the money to, for example, redact these documents is not cheap. You got to pay not real lawyer, not lawyers who are charging $200 an hour, but people who are qualified enough to make the judgments about what have to be redacted. So it's all very expensive. And then, you know, I, I'm not in here for the money. Um, and, you know, obviously professional firms like uh, Bryce and Gillette, um, uh, is doing their job and, you know, they're going to be compensated for their job. But, um, but, but this has not been a project where money, slushes of money that have been pushed around to drive the agenda one way or the other. Now, is she pushing a political agenda? Well, I think the agenda she's pushing is a better understanding of the truth about Facebook because there has been a political agenda on the other side. We've seen again and again, Mark Zuckerberg on down telling a story about that company that turns out not to be correct. That the dynamics of what's going on inside that company among good uh, lawyer, uh, among engineers acting in good faith is a story of an extraordinary struggle, time and again, the trade-off between safety and profits. And time and again, the choice being made in favor of profits over safety to the great frustration of many of those engineers. That story needs to be told. And that is that an agenda? I don't know. It's like an it's the agenda to make more understandable a reality that is affecting all of us. Yeah, and I don't, I'm definitely not suggesting that this was like a, a way to get rich quick scheme. Uh, but yeah, I do think it's important to talk about the motivations of the funders and the point that you just brought up about the academics. I mean, you talk about the third party organizations that are out there uh, that you know look legit. There's like a thousand of them. Yeah. And they fight every anti-big tech, every anti-Facebook uh, initiative. Uh, well, not even anti-reform, every reform initiative. And they're all funded by these companies. And I was speaking to you know, a source close to the antitrust uh, initiative in, con- in Congress. And there was boasting about how they were going to come after you know, Rep- uh, Representative David C. Cellini. And you know, then they turned on all the agencies once some of this antitrust stuff got, got going. So... Yeah, but the the money is is uh, you know you follow the money. I guess this has been been your thing for a while, right? So yes. uh, and you you find pretty wild stuff. So is there anybody that uh, this campaign would turn money down from? Like again, like I'll just bring up the China example. Uh, China, well, I, China. We haven't had that conversation because you know we haven't had a problem of like endless yeah, yeah. money coming in. Right, right. But I'm I sure there would be. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure there would be. I mean, uh, I, I certainly would recommend, um, but. Um, because, you know, the sensitivity that you're revealing is a valid one. It's an important yeah. one. And we ought – now, I, I think Pierre Amidiar, you know, nobody's embarrassed about taking money from Pierre Amidiar. Um, right. Uh, uh, and uh, and I, I have incredible respect for his integrity and his extraordinary – you know, what he did, what he built. Um, but um, – uh, but I think the question is an important one. Let's keep on asking it and, and ask yeah. it on all sides, you know, so <laughs> um, we it's not just here. Francis, right? But, you know, yeah. people who are going to be supporting Facebook, why are they supporting Facebook? Like, what, what, what is going on behind that? And let's keep that question on front and center to make sure that we have a clear sense of who's responsible to whom. Yeah. And if people want to hear the, the question on the other side, I recommend them going back in this podcast and re- listening to the episode sure. with Adam Kavakovic. That That might be of interest. Uh, I want to touch on the Bitcoin stuff. It came up in Ben Smith's column. Uh, Francis apparently is self-funding this in some way with, with Bitcoin winnings and living in Puerto Rico with her crypto friends. Um, 
uh, people, I, I have to ask, people have brought up the fact that like Puerto Rico is kind of like a, a, a tax shelter for people who've like made big money on capital gains. Uh, how do you feel about that? Is Francis, you know, excited about it? I mean, we talk about the big tech companies paying, I don't know, paying a little bit of taxes on, on the money they make, you know, is this even a valid question? I mean, it's definitely a valid question. What do you think about it? Well, remember, yeah. Puerto Rico is part of the United States. Mm -hmm. It's a poorly treated territory of the United States. It's not been attributed. It's not been given equal rights. Citizens from Puerto Rico are not given equal rights. Um, so we owe Puerto Rico a lot. Um, and of course, the United States government has taken steps to try to encourage uh, entrepreneurs in Puerto Rico. Um, and I think that's a great thing. And if an American citizen wants to go live in a part of America called Puerto Rico and do their work, I'm all for it. Um, you know, they could go to South Dakota and evade all sorts of regulations. I mean, there's an extraordinary ability to hide your assets in South Dakota, like it's the, um, the great laundering um, location of America today. Um, does, are people troubled by the fact that you go to South Dakota? I mean, it's part of the United States. So um, I, you know, I don't have not never talked to Francis about the tax implications. I'm sure that there are investment um, incentives yeah. for entrepreneurs. And in, oh, it's in like South why America. all the crypto people are there. Yeah, it's, well, it's to good. Tax. I'm glad they're there <laughs> rather than the Grand Caymans or something like that. Yeah, you know, it's, yeah, it's yeah. part of the United States. Let's let's keep it here. Okay, uh, so we we've touched on funding. Uh, let's talk again about about the political goals. Uh, in particular, uh, you know, are, are there um, any you know specific political outcomes uh, you know that Francis would like to see? Like, if, does she have like a wish list here, um, or is it something that, like you mentioned, like maybe the the best way to go about this is to turn the documents over to civil society and like have them come up with the solutions? Well, I think it, the the main goal Francis has, as she said, is that the platform become safer. And yeah. how that's brought about is complicated by the dysfunction of governments around the world. So, you know, we have dreams about what the United States government might do, but we have a re recognition that the United States government is, 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 is wildly crippled in its capacity to legislate. And the chances of real legislation happening anytime soon, I think, um, uh, are, are scary to contemplate. But there's a lot that can be done before uh, legislation. Um, Center for Meaning Technology has launched a campaign to try to get, um, uh, for example, Apple to insist that Facebook implement changes to make it so that the platform is not so poisonously viral. Hmm. Um, and, and one really important, one really interesting and important uh, bit of information in the in the uh, Facebook files is the research about um, reshares on Facebook. Um, and so what this basically shows is that if if you have something that's been reshared twice, it's four times more likely to be misinformation. And as the reshares go up, that probability goes up to almost 10 times more likely to be information. And the proposal in response to that is to say, let's just limit reshares to two. Now, that doesn't mean that once it's been shared twice, it can't be shared again. It just means that you got to copy the URL and paste it into yes. your message and send it on your own. And so here's a very simple technical way that's completely content neutral. It's not looking at conservative reshares versus liberal reshares. It's just any liberal, any reshare and saying that um, let's, let's put a speed limit almost on the, on the platform to slow it down so humans can like catch up. Um, and that would deal with a huge amount of the misinformation. 
And my point is that, and, and I think what CHT is, is suggesting is that actually companies could begin to insist on that tomorrow. You know, if, Steve, if Tim Cook said mm-hmm. tomorrow that um, the, Facebook won't be on the platform unless it takes steps against these poisonously viral uh, aspects of their platform, that would change pretty quickly. Now, other governments are actually capable of governing. I think Britain is close to being able to pass legislation here. Um, and I think the Euro- Europeans as well are, pass- are at the position of passing legislation. I've not studied the bills that are being considered, so I don't want to give any support or opposition to them. But I'm just saying that they are they have functioning governments in the way that I don't think we have a functioning government. And, and so I think that we could see legislation in Europe, but I think we could see, um, you know, not Facebook regulating itself. We tried that. Turns out that doesn't, that doesn't work, <laughs> but we mm. could see other companies stepping up and trying to create a standard of safety so that, um, so that we see Facebook um, uh, uh, actually changing their behavior. Yeah. I'm so glad you bring up the reshare. Uh, this is something I've been standing on the table about for years now. And uh, I spoke with the guy who built the retweet or who helped lead the project team that built the retweet in Twitter. And he said it was like handing, I think his words were, it was like handing a machine gun to four-year-olds. Yes. And, um, and and the same thing is is the situation with Facebook where when you start to hit that share button, it's geared entirely towards emotion and not thoughtfulness. And it's, uh, you know, this is another one of those things where um, we've known it for a while, but to see the documents is good. Actually, I should follow up with you after this because I'd like to find the document name and, and, and you know, look into writing something about this because that's you should, pretty revelatory. You should. It's really important uh, and yeah. it emphasizes – um, an important dis- difference that I think lawyers are sometimes like slow to grab. <laughs> I mean, not because lawyers are slow, but because we like to think of things in traditional ways. You know, everybody looks at this debate about how do we deal with Facebook and thinks this is a debate about censoring. Even, you know, um, Glenn Greenwald is like obsessed with the idea that anything against Facebook would be about censoring speech. Um, but, you know, the, the problem with Facebook is not that there are particularly bad messages on Facebook. The problem with Facebook is not the speech, it's the amplification. It's the manipulation engine that amplifies some speech and suppresses other speech. And of course, they're not amplifying speech on the basis of anything anybody would recognize as a good reason to amplify speech. They're not amplifying liberal speech or conservative speech, not amplifying well-thought-out arguments. Um, They're amplifying the things that they know will trigger more engagement. And what is that? It's anger, it's emotion, it's ignorance, it's falsehood. Um, And that dynamic of amplifying the worst of us is the essence of the problem. And with some people, like with kids, when you look at the stories about how teens are fed even more body dysphoric images when when they're identified as body dysphoric because that just drives them to to a focus even more, at a certain point you're like, well, you know, this is a platform which is doing harm for those people. Hmm. Um, and one thing Francis said that I think is really brilliant um, in her, her testimony um, in Britain was to say, um, you know, for many years, drug companies in the United States, you know, in the 19th century would make drugs and then governments would have to come along and prove that the drugs were harmful. Um, and Francis said that at a certain stage, the frame was reversed and drug companies had to prove their product was safe before they could bring it to the market. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, for some of these contexts, you know, like algorithms with children, maybe we ought to start thinking about a regime where you got to demonstrate safety before you can deploy an algorithm, a manipulation machine for children. Mm-hmm. Um, 
especially when we see the consequences of, uh, of this un- unregulated uh, uh, dynamic um, are so tragic for so many. Yeah. Last question in this segment. I don't want to let you ha- off the hook with this Apple idea without asking you a question about it. Okay. Um, Apple's a pretty serious competitor to Facebook. And actually, I, from my understanding, uh, you know, wants to see it go away. Uh, aren't you a little uncomfortable with the fact that, you know, the Center for Humane Technology is asking, you know, essentially for an anti-competitive move here, uh, relying on a, on a, you know, sort of unchecked, you call it a monopoly or a member of a duopoly in terms of operating systems, you know, that could potentially, um, you know, kneecap Facebook. Now we can talk all, all about the share button all day long. Uh, but this is again, a power question. So I'm wondering what you feel about that. I think all of us wish we were in the first best world where we had a well-functioning government. Mm-hmm. And, um, if we had a well-functioning government, I'm sure we would have a very different face on Silicon Valley. Um, you know, I, I, for a brief time, a nanosecond was a special master in the Microsoft case. The Microsoft case was the last time we had an antitrust enforcement action against uh, Silicon Valley companies. I mean, you know, technology companies. That was more than twenty years ago, um, and so I completely agree with you that uh, we should be. We should first thing we should be looking for is the government to, to do the right thing. But if we realize the government's not going to do the right thing uh, in you know the next six months, the next year, whatever, and we realize there's extraordinary risk created by this platform right now. Then what should we do? And I have no problem, hesitation, saying that we should do whatever we can. And if that means saying to to, to Apple, like you're trying to be the safety company, you're trying to demonstrate safety. Um, I mean, I've written skeptical pieces mm-hmm. about Apple and what they're doing. And, and, you know, they're all businesses. They're all in it ultimately to figure out what the right way to make money is. Um, so I'm not praising Apple because it's Apple, but I'm saying they have an extraordinary opportunity to leverage their brand around safety in a way that could actually help make the internet platform safer. And why not? Why not do whatever we can to make it so that we don't lead into the next election cycle with a engine, a manipulation engine that is just focused exclusively on how to turn us into crazy people because we've seen the consequence of that. And it's, uh, it's not, it's not pretty. I would say we're very sane. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Uh, All right. After the break, I want to, there are a few more issues I want to talk to you about. So let's do that. We have like another 10 minutes or so. So uh, we're here with Larry Lessig and we're talking about Francis Haugen and the Facebook files, the Facebook papers, depends on your persuasion on that front. Um, We'll be back right after this. I'm Kwame Christian, and I am the CEO of the American Negotiation Institute, and I want you to check out my podcast, Negotiate Real Change. Listen to conversations with leaders in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space, and learn the secrets behind what it really takes to become a successful advocate, ally, and change maker in your organization. Check out Negotiate Real Change on your favorite podcast player. And we're back here for one final segment on the Big Technology Podcast with Larry Lessig. He's a professor at Harvard Law School an advisor and lawyer for Francis Haugen, the Facebook whistleblower, graciously here to talk to us about all the issues. Uh, speaking of the issues, we just had Farad Manju on. Uh, he is an opinion columnist for The Times, and he describes what's happening around the Instagram and, uh, stuff in particular, the way that it impacts teens as something of a moral panic. Um, and basically says every time there's been a new technology, comic books, television, 
people have said, oh, it's ruining the, the kids. Um, why is this time different in your opinion? Uh, January 6th. Say more I about mean, that. Th- yeah. uh, look, we live at a time when half of a part of a political party, the Republican Party, believes something which we know is completely false. Half the Republican Party believes the election was stolen. More than half the Republican Party believes there's clear evidence that the election was stolen. We know that's not true. We just know that's not true. We should pause and ask, how is it the infrastructure of the media? And, you know, Facebook isn't the media. There's lots more. But how is it we have an infrastructure that can lead to this fundamental misunderstanding about something so incredibly important in the world? And I think... um, a big part of it is the ad-driven character of media generally. You know, if you look at, uh, in my book, um, uh, They Don't Represent Us, which came out in 2019 before all of this, but but there's a section where I describe what I think of as the scariest graph in American politics, which is a graph that marks the ideological content of the three broadcast uh, cable networks, Fox and MSNBC and uh, CNN. And in 2000, the ideological con- content is basically the same. But from the period 2000 to 2010, you see a radical divergence as Fox becomes extremely conservative, MSNBC becomes liberal, and CNN is trying to bounce between them. And that's because the business model of driving to a really engaged base so that they could better sell ads on their network produces this as the sensible result. The politics of hate pays. It pays on cable television. It pays on the platform of the internet. And I don't think it's moral panic to ask, what do we do when the infrastructure of democracy is being driven by a machine that cares only about how to turn us into people who hate our neighbors? I think that is a really important question. Like, there was a there was a panic around comic books in the 1950s. I don't remember anybody storming the Capitol on the belief that you know Superman was being kept in the basement of the Capitol someplace. I just don't think that happened. And so, the fact that there were panics before doesn't make everything that's happening now just as insignificant. Oh man, I have so many questions I want to ask you about that. Uh, so first of all, um, well, let's just go to the obvious question as a follow-up. Why are we focused on Facebook and not the cable networks if you if you diagnose that as the issue? I, I think we should be focused on both. I mean, you know, my colleague Yochai Benkler after 2016 wrote a, a book about whether it was Facebook that gave us the uh, uh, election of Donald Trump or the cable networks and said, you know, I don't think it's Facebook. I don't think it's the internet. I think it's the cable networks. And we ought to be focusing on the loss of journalistic standards by these cable, by that cable network in particular. Um, I think we need to be talking about all of them together. But the fact that this is the one that's now has our attention, given our limited attention as a public, um, is no reason to pretend that it's not a significant issue. It's an extremely significant issue. It's just one part of an even bigger issue and an even bigger threat. Okay, that's really interesting. So that's it's what's in front of us right now that that's driving this. Uh, and then the the part of the moral panic that Fard was talking about, in particular, looked at the Instagram story about its uh, issues with with teen mental health. His his uh, and that's what he was talking about in terms of the moral panic. The other stuff uh, we didn't really touch on, and neither did his column. Uh, but uh, essentially, yeah, th- that's been his idea. And also, he said that. Um, that this was all self-reported data, which is notoriously unreliable. Um, and actually, I think if you look into it, uh, some of it wasn't, you know, as terrible as people made it out to be. For instance, like the, the numbers were big, but it was, you know, drawn from people who were already having a bad 
uh, experience. And, you know, maybe a third of them said into Instagram made them felt feel worse. Two thirds said it made them feel better. Um, what's the baseline there? So, so yeah, can you address that one in particular? Well, look, I think the Haugen paper, uh, the Facebook uh, files, which Francis has uh, released, should trigger a bunch of other releases too, because I think it's a fair question whether we have the full picture and how do we analyze all the data once we do have the full picture. In, in lawyer speak, though, I think the prima facie case has been made. I think there's enough data out there to say there's something here to worry about. Um, you know, it's not to condemn, but to worry about. The fact that two-thirds of people say they like the platform when one-third say they don't is no justification for the platform. Look, 90% of people don't get cancer from cigarettes. That's not an endorsement of cigarettes. Um, so, th- so I think that the challenge in understanding the criticism is to recognize the precision of the criticism. And the precision is when there are design choices that could make the platform safer but less profitable or more profitable and less safe, the choice has been to follow profit rather than safety. It's that choice that is the criticism. It's not saying that overall we should dump something because it's terrible for kids. Now, you know, I'm somebody who has kids. My youngest is 12. My oldest is 18. I think I'm in, I, my kids are in the, in the generation where it's impossible not to believe <laughs> that these platforms are having a profound effect on their lives. And as a parent, it's extremely frustrating to, to try to think about the constant fight you've got to make to, buy, to reclaim some uh, order and some space for your kids. So, you know, from my perspective, it's hard not to believe that there's an effect here. But I think it's right to say, as Farhad is saying, that we, that we need to run this through the same kind of scientific evaluations that, you know, the claims about cancer and cigarettes ran through. Let's run it all through that. The difference is with cigarettes, We didn't depend upon the tobacco companies to give us the data to evaluate whether cigarettes produce cancer. We could do that on our own. We don't have the data to know whether uh, Instagram is causing kids to uh, commit suicide. We don't have that data because they consider it their secret. Well, Francis has given us an opening into that. Let's get more and let's let the academics, those not paid by Facebook or Instagram at least, to evaluate it and decide what in fact the truth is. Yeah, you might have to look pretty far and wide to get to those academics, but I'm, I'm <laughs> confident we can get there. You talk about precision. So one thing that people have talked about sort of in vogue discussion has been, you know, just remove the algorithm, remove the newsfeed algorithm, give us like the reverse chronological feed that's not sorted by anything Facebook would want uh, us to um, see and, you know, let people do the work themselves and we'll be living in a better society. Well, one of the documents I saw this week and wrote about in big technology was that Facebook did do that experiment. And here's what they found. They found that, um, that integrity issues spiked. They found that ad views spiked because people were scrolling through the feed, you know, far more than they were beforehand, just trying to find something interesting. They found that content from groups, which we know of all sorts of problems, uh, ended up in the newsfeed before a lot of other stuff. And, uh, yeah. And, um, they found that people hid posts 50% more, meaning they just didn't want to see them. So I would love to hear your perspective on this algorithm question. Is it just a matter of removing the algorithm or, um, or, or you know, is that too simple of a solution and a nice soundbite, but not a real uh, uh, you know, way for us to get past some of the issues we see on Facebook? I, it's a great way to frame it. Is it too simple? Yes. Mm-hmm. Because the algorithm problem is really complicated. 
And I don't think there's a silver bullet here. And I don't think that, you know, what Frances has tried to do is to sort of suggest that she knows the answer to all of these problems. What we're trying to do, what she's trying to do, is to make it clear that there are problems that we've got to find a better way to address. Um, and what drives these problems at their core is a business model, not just with Facebook, but TikTok and every one of these platforms, that's focused on grabbing as much of our attention as they possibly can. That's the, that's that's what pays that keeps the lights on, right? And and as long as that's the business model and surveillance capitalism is the mechanism, we're going to have a lot a lot of complicated problems we have to untangle. But let's find a way of delivering content that is least destructive of our democracy, our understanding of issues, and um, you know our own mental health. I mean, that's the objective. And however you have to tweak the algorithm to get there, let's tweak to get there. Well, this has been fun. It has. It has a, <laughs> Thank a lot you, of Larry. Relics. Thank you. Appreciate you rolling with it. And uh, I definitely feel much better informed about Francis's strategy uh, and what's going on here than I was beforehand. That's why we love to have these conversations. And I'm sure, because I know how these things go, that there are a ton of listeners that hit play at the beginning of this hour and are still with us now, which is very exciting. So that is great. thank you for being here. It's, it's really great to get a chance to chat with you. I hope we can do it again. I, and every time you ask, Alex, I say yes. Okay. <laughs> well, we're one for one. <laughs> we're one for one. <laughs> uh, right, thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you, Nate Guatney, for editing and mastering the audio. Thank you, Red Circle, for hosting the podcast and selling the ads. And thanks, most importantly, to you, the listener, for coming back every week and engaging with us here on Big Technology Podcast. Wouldn't be anywhere if it wasn't for you. And, and I appreciate you spending time with me every week. Uh, and, and I guess that's going to do it for us here. So uh, we'll be back next week with another interview with the Tech Insider or Outside Agitator. We know which category Larry falls in. Uh, and so we hope you stick with us. First timers, uh, please subscribe if you are a longtime listener and haven't hit a rating yet. We would appreciate it. Uh, and that will do it for us here on the Big Technology Podcast. Mm-hmm.